Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. With such a vibrant and sustainable arts landscape enjoyed by many in Singapore, the performing arts scene is rich and deep-rooted, expanding audiences and deepening engagement through digital means. And Esplanade Theatres on the Bay is one of the world's busiest art centres. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Yvonne Tham, CEO at the Esplanade Company. Yvonne is currently the Chief Executive. Um, she has been responsible for fulfilling Esplanade's strategic and social objectives as a performing arts centre for everyone. She's been working closely with various teams to strengthen Esplanade's relationship and engagement with different communities it serves, from children and youth to seniors and beneficiaries of social service organisations. Yvonne has also been involved in Esplanade's national role in developing new works as well as artistic and technical capabilities for the industry by working in close partnership with Singapore regional and international artists. Prior to joining the Esplanade, Yvonne was the Assistant CEO and Deputy Chief Executive at the National Arts Council where she oversaw the Council's strategic planning and capability development departments as well as the development and implementation of policies and programmes for art grants, arts education, community engagement and arts infrastructure. Yvonne, it's amazing to have you with us. Thank you so much indeed. A very warm welcome to you. No, thank you, David. Happy to be here. So you have an incredible background. Can you just talk to um, our listeners a little bit about the vibrancy and the strength of the performing arts scene in Singapore? Well, I would say that, you know, about 30 years ago, uh, that's when the, the Singapore government really focused on building up the sort of formal infrastructure around the arts. So all the institutions, the museums, uh, the idea for, for Esplanade came about about 30, about 30 years ago. You know, even the Arts Council, um, it being a having relationships with, with uh, the UK and, you know, being ex-colony, we also have an arts council. So we do kind of model after certain uh, governance structures that, that you, you know, you guys also have. So there are some familiar uh, things that uh, help to govern our arts landscape. Um, but actually the reality is that, you know, there's always been a very vibrant kind of folk culture. And if you really think about culture, it's about weddings, uh, you know, gatherings of people, um, you know, stuff that ha happens in our, our temples, in our public squares, um, that, that has always been very much part of, I think, what defines Singapore culture for me. So notwithstanding the, the very formal structures of museums and, you know, performing arts centre like, like the Esplanade, that's always been uh, quite a fair bit of kind of folk, uh, you know, ground up community uh, arts groups they've always existed. Uh, if you take the, the Indian culture, for instance, you know, they've always had the young people go for Indian dance. And that, that's part of a growing up experience or learning an Indian musical instrument. Um, so I would say like the vibrancy and strength of Singapore's arts and cultural scene, it's not, I mean, to the rest of the world, it feels as if we've got all these fancy infrastructure, you know, nice gleaming buildings. And, um, but for me, I think what's really underpinning it it's the stuff that, you know, the, the real stuff that keeps uh, people going. It, when you attend a, a wedding uh, with a Malay family, there's always dance, you know. And, and those are the things which even for us as an arts centre today, you know, while we present a whole lot of um, big international productions, uh, the bulk of the presentations at the Esplanade are actually made up 
of um, performances by amateur musicians, community groups, you know, young up and coming singer songwriters. And that to me is the, the heartbeat of the art center, the, the big fancy productions that helps attract, of course, you know, sponsors, donors, and it, it does create excitement. But on a day to day basis, these regular performances at the Esplanade free, many of them are free. Um, that, is, that is what makes, at least for me, most proud of um, what has sustained an art center like this and what has helped us also build relationships with audiences. So I've given you a kind of fairly wrong, long answer to what, you know, to your, to your, your question. I, I just want to kind of shift the focus away from what Singapore is typically known for, which yeah. is big, beautiful buildings, you know, the monies that uh, the government does invest uh, in, um, in terms of building many of our institutions. Um, but actually underpinning that, that there is quite a fair bit of just very natural folk, uh, traditional, you know, community culture. Yeah. That's really, really nice to hear that. And, um, you know, you, you do mention sort of the big buildings and that's sort of the modern Singapore, I guess, rather than the sort of the heritage element you brought into that. And, you know, Singapore is the second easiest country in the world to do business with and presents itself as a very popular place for international companies to base themselves here to expand across the Asia Pacific region. And I guess, you know, with that international flavour, um, how do you balance the cultural requirements for such an international community as well as such a, a rich heritage um, of culture as well? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about the Performing Arts Centre when Esplanade was first open uh, or when plans were first being discussed for in the in the 90s, there was that huge pushback from the, the, the local artists who said, this is not for us. It's just going to have, you know, uh, musicals from West End and Broadway. It's not our theatre. Uh, or it, you know, it may invite uh, big international orchestras, but that's not the whole for our music. So, you know, for, an in, for us, Esplanade, we really had to, to embrace that, you know, Singapore is part of an international trade route. We do have a very global uh, resident population, but at the heart of it, if we want to be an art center for Singapore, about Singapore, and in fact, that's what the rest of the world is interested in as well. You know, what do we speak about? Who do we speak for? What are the kinds of stories that are, are interesting? And I think these stories are not just found in Singapore. In, in a way, um, they are found in the region. And, and, you know, while we talk about Singapore being very international, it's also very um, connected to the rest of Asia. And, you, you know, you see that in our population. Um, so for, for the Esplanade, one of the main things, uh, key things that we've been doing is building up a whole series of festivals all throughout the year. So for instance, we would have a festival that looks at art from Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, kind of, you know, what we call the Nusantara. Uh, we, had a, we have a festival that looks at um, the Chinese arts and that looks at the wider Chinese diaspora, you know, artists. Chinese artists who are living in the, the US, the UK, of course, Chinese artists from Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, China, um, and we have an Indian arts festival as well. So these, these arts festivals allow us to kind of think about what Singapore means internationally, but also connect with our traditional uh, domestic vernacular uh, traditions and artistic practices in a way. So that's, that's how we try to kind of balance that could stay open to the rest of the world, but also understand that Singapore is very, very much part of Asia. 
and therefore not denying those links. And in fact, as much as possible, exploring and, and commissioning work that explore these things. I've been very lucky to um, spend um, quite a lot of time. I have quite, a, quite an arty partner, so I'm, I'm often sort of um, at the Esplanade as well. And um, it's really, really nice to hear you talk about sort of those different flavors of festivals and bringing that local flavor in. Um, how, how do you source performing arts and how do you keep up to date with what the population here in Singapore, but more broadly around the region are looking for? And how do, how do you sort of balance those big blockbuster shows um, with the local curated content? I think, you know, that's why we do 4,000 uh, activities a year. If you really want to capture that kind of diversity, you, you have to just go for it, right? Um, we have a team of programmers. I mean, that's the simple answer. Uh, a team of programmers whose job really is to stay connected. Um, you know, we have been going to festivals around the world. Uh, obviously, can't do that with COVID now, but um, those networks have been formed. Uh, and, you know, the programmers do nothing but spend a lot of time just watching, having conversations with artists, and not just artists in Singapore, but internationally. Um, so at the, at the heart of making the arts, I, I guess it's just about relationships and conversations, keeping, keeping a lot of those networks open. Um, and the balance is frankly one of finance. I mean, if you think about it, uh, we, we are very lucky to receive funding from the government for part of the work we do, but we, we have to earn the other half of it. And that's where the blockbusters come in. Um, that, that helps to balance out the, the picture in terms of sponsorship income, uh, ticketing income, you know. Um, we also run a mall. Uh, part of the art center. I mean, 30 years ago, uh, you know, the, the world kind of laughed at, at Singapore for putting shops together with performing arts venue because it's like, oh, of course, in Singapore, you have to have, you know, shopping and food uh, and the arts seem to be attached to that. But the reality is that many, many arts complex today are, are, are taking this model, realizing that when people come out for, you know, a day out with their family, it's, it's not just about the arts, it's the public spaces, the gardens, the cafes around. So it, for us too, part of that business model is then making sure uh, our mall tenants are doing well and the blockbusters are very, very much part of their ability to, you know, um, have a sustainable business. Yeah. Fantastic. What, what, what brings international productions to Singapore? Is it that vibrancy of culture? Is it, is it the geographic location of Singapore within Asia that, that, that has typically um, sort of less than COVID times, but attracted more of a, a regional audience? Several things. I mean, I, I like to think, you know, although I did say let's not focus on the, the infrastructure, we do have a beautiful concert hall. And, you know, in the early days, um, um, you, uh, orchestras would love who are new to us would think, I want to play in that, in that Russell Johnson um, concert hall. And that, that was really something that drew orchestras to, to the Esplanade. Um, and when many international artists come and visit us, we, well, not just international artists, even local artists, uh, we make sure they have a really good time. Uh, and, you know, that's everything from the dressing rooms to the welcome they receive, uh, you know, to, to us getting a beer by the waterfront. Um, and I think that has helped kind of build the reputation for Esplanade as a, as a place that artists want to go come to because they are, they are well treated. Uh, so yeah, that, that is definitely one attraction point. The other is that, you know, in more recent years, I would say in the last five years, there's been more of a, a touring circuit. And again, COVID's going to 
to uh, throw this out of the window for maybe the next two or three years. But with many more new art centers being built in China, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, even within Southeast Asia, right? We've, uh, we've been hearing of uh, new art centers that are opening up in Indonesia, in uh, Vietnam, and down under in Australia as well. If, if you were coming from Europe, you probably would stop over Singapore before you get to Australia. So um, there, it makes sense, I think, for many international touring productions to then think about uh, coming to this part of the world and stitching up a, a tour around that. Again, you know, and I'm sure we'll get to this in, uh, later on in our conversation, which is how, how is that going to happen? Well, how is it going to be affected um, with all the travel restrictions? And obviously in different jurisdictions, uh, every country having slightly different requirements and border controls, it's going to be a lot harder uh, to coordinate uh, international travel for artists over the next, I don't know, 12 months, at least 12, 18 months. Yeah. I know. I think, and I think turning to that, I think I, I know a lot of the British business community was um, was very saddened um, or very excited to begin with that you were bringing Warhorse over with the Singapore Repertory Theatre as well. And, um, you know, obviously COVID's had a big impact on that. What has the impact of COVID been on, on the Esplanade, given that you're so reliant on so much on so much footfall, but also a lot of the, the free fringe events that you do that bring such a, an enriching culture to the population here? How, how has COVID had an impact overall? Well, we've never ever closed our doors since day one. And, you know, even during SARS, SARS took place um, in 2002. And that was the year we opened as, as well. Uh, but even throughout SARS, Esplanade stayed open, you know. So COVID, well, led to our very first lockdown. <laughs> we were dark for at least, what, two months? Yeah, a month, well, for about a month. Uh, so that 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 was pretty shocking, I think, for many of us who love being in the art center. We we you know the best part of our job is being in the center itself, not dealing with an online digital program. Um, so that has that has thrown. You can imagine the number of performances that were cancelled. Warhorse being a major performance, and we have been negotiating with you know uh, National Theatre for several years. In fact to have that production come here. So we were all terribly disappointed. Um, that as well as, you know, as I mentioned, uh, we have a mall and with the shutdown, it just meant another major part of our business uh, has been affected, the mall, the mall income. Um, not to mention all our sponsors and donors. Um, we have a whole lot of fringe activities, as you mentioned, which means that we reach out to a lot of, um, you know, elderly homes, uh, all for all kinds of vulnerable communities and, and all of a sudden those relationships are are I wouldn't say that they're broken but it's very hard for us to think about how on earth do we meet their needs uh, without being a life uh, a center as well um, so in the last four months we've we've really had to kind of adjust or adapt very, very quickly to what's been happening. We've been fairly lucky because about two years ago, we, we started thinking about what it means to be a digital performing arts center. That was a question we posed ourselves in, at Esplanade, you know, um, with everything going online and with so much digitization happening, what does it mean not just to be the world's busiest kind of physical offline, if you will, art center and public space, 
but if we were to be a digital performing arts center what would that picture be like and so we we've been kind of uh, we started on a journey two years ago so when COVID hit us we had you know we were six months into launching a brand new platform called off, off stage um, and that was already housing a whole lot of uh, online performances articles uh, you know things that parents can do with their kids uh, you know all, all sorts of uh, online content arts related content and so we could quickly ride on that and you know, put up even more stuff. And we've been kind of digitizing our archives. That was the other, the other thing that has been happening over the last few years. Um, and because we've done that, uh, we, we have a ready stock of archival footage to draw on, at least in that first month of a, of a, a lockdown, you know. So we were pretty lucky in, in that transition to a, a more digital kind of presence. And, that, yeah. and that, 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 that must have sort of absolutely been accelerated. I mean, we've been on a very, very similar journey, right, with, with sponsors of the Chamber, with our activities. We've had to completely pivot into a, into a different environment for our audiences. I mean, does, do you see that as creating a really sort of strong opportunity where you can almost, with that digital content, create, um, you know, uh, sub create experiences for audiences that might not necessarily have come through the doors or come through in terms of football? Yeah, well, that's what we've been discovering, that the audiences online, I would say more than 50% will not have had an encounter with the arts or with the Esplanade uh, before. So in that way, that's that's huge opportunity. But I think the reality is that if you look at any eight, nine-year-old, they're spending all their, their time um, kind of talking to a screen, like what we're doing now, right? Um, so in a way, it's, it's going to be part, I mean, when we started asking ourselves that question, we were thinking about our kids or nieces and nephews. We were thinking about what will we be to them, to them. And of course, we don't, we will never stop wanting as human beings to want together and to meet. Um, but what would that digital space be like in terms of complementing what we can do? Uh, so, you know, that, that the phrase now is blended uh, performance, right? That, that's what we've, that's the phrase that everybody's using. And we've been thinking about that for some time, which means before you turn up at the art center, you know, you would already be able to read about the artist. You may already have, you know, booked your, your meal. Um, and after your visit, what could you do um, that, you know, you, you could explore a lot more about the artist if you were interested about the performance. Um, we could design, you know, artist dialogue sessions very, very differently. So it's not so much that the digital would completely overtake but how would it complement uh, that experience of being in a, in a live venue? But of course, you know, there's always a limitation also of a live venue. However popular a concert is, you know, our theatre can take 2,000 people at any one time. Uh, and, you know, many, many of the, the activities that we do that are constantly oversubscribed are actually programs for young people. And, you know, and as a result of this, we're saying, yeah, you know, we are limited by our physical space in terms of the young people we can interact with, but we could start that, that relationship a lot earlier online. And eventually they'll get to us or eventually we'll get to them. Uh, and how do we bring the Esplanade into their mobile devices or into their classrooms? Um, so you're right. I mean, it's, it's reaching out to a new audience. It's also making sure that for existing audience, they get a whole lot more out of it. Um, and that for transactions, it's a lot more seamless. I mean, as it is today, we're, we're making all kinds of transactions online. And how, how is it that coming to an art center, thinking about what to do, 
um, that can be a whole that can be a lot more seamless as well. Um, but you know, the other thing we've discovered during a time like this is how can we as a physical arts centre not lose touch, even though we're still not allowed to open compared to theatres in the UK over the weekend. I mean, I was just talking to you, David, that um, your government has announced that you could have live performances again. We're still not allowed to have live audiences. Uh, we can have recordings and rehearsals, uh, but not live audiences. So what we've discovered in a period like that is there are folks out there who you know, will not get online. And we're thinking of people that, uh, for instance, folks in elder, elderly kind of senior care facilities, right? Um, they, they must be getting even fewer visitors at a time like that. Um, uh, folks in neighborhoods who are, you know, lonely seniors who live alone, how, how do we bring the arts to them in a time like that? And you can't ask them to go and, you know, watch something on your mobile phones. It's just so yeah. alienating. So, you know, some of us are thinking, what can we do, you know, that it's safe? Can, can we drive a truck down, put artists on it, <laughs> um, keep a safe distance, but, you know, park in the car park, play to, play to old folks in, in the senior home, still bring cheer in a different way. And, and in a way, kind of demonstrate that the, the, the artists can go to where you are, even if not in your phone. And, and that is part of the, you know, the, the creativity of artists. We kind of improvise all the time on the fly. We don't need fancy equipment. Um, so even for an art center like us, of obviously with digital, you, we could do fancy stuff. But on the other extreme, we are also exploring ways in which we kind of go very low tech, very low fi You know, how do we bring two or three musicians um, safely on a truck or on a bus, whatever it may be, um, to, to communities who need that, that kind of cheering up as well. I really like that. So um, what, have you got, what have you got in your plans? Have you, is, is it exactly that? Is it about getting the artists to the audiences? Yeah, well, that, that is something we're exploring. Uh, we're, we're hoping to, to test it out in November, uh, maybe enlist some sponsors and donors to help us along. I mean, folks who, who still believe and have the ability to, to support uh, an initiative like this. So that's 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 what we're we're thinking of, going no. back to six, uh, kind of a troubadours, you know, <laughs> or yeah, that a traveling circus, if you, yeah. I think it's absolutely wonderful, and um, and yeah, I, I, I've, I've again I've been lucky enough to go into your concert hall, and it's absolutely stunning. The acoustics in there are absolutely incredible, and um, but I guess technology sort of plays a bit of a bit of an unlocker, doesn't it? Because I think some of the audio devices we've now got in terms of sort of noise cancelling technology, yeah. and when we're listening to music at home, is is really really good. So does that does that sort of present an opportunity in the likes of VR and other technologies? Are you are you sort of looking at how you can start getting those experiences into other homes? Yeah, I mean, just just uh, last week, uh, we've had a company, a theatre company, uh, talk about a kind of a VR kind of experience um, around a theatre. Um, for us, I think it's going to be artistically what you're trying to achieve first. The technology right. comes later. And because there are so many technological kind of innovations and tools out there, you, can't, you have to be quite careful about um, what you're going to invest in. And in fact, you don't want to invest in anything heavy at a time like that. You want to, you want to stay light and you want to be able to plug and play. Um, so what, where we're at now is uh, because so much of it's going to be broadcast for now until we have a clearer picture about when 
live audiences can can come in. We're just exploring all kinds of uh, broadcast ideas. Um, yeah, interesting, but very low tech uh, idea was we had um, theater practitioners do um, forum theater, interactive theater with students in a classroom. You don't need VR, AR. You need very good artists who are able to improvise, who have mastered their characters and can speak in character with the students. You know, um, and it's something as simple as this, but very, very powerful can happen. So I always believe it's not about the technology and sometimes the technology can, can distract. You know, and we spend so much time trying to get that technology to work when actually what we're trying to do is just facilitate that kind of human connection. That's it. Even in the areas of um, broadcast, we're starting to think about how do you monetize that? To be frank, you know, around the world, everyone's thinking about this. Uh, there's so much digital content online. Um, some paid for, bulk of it in the arts tend to be free. Uh, people are paying for uh, entertainment via Netflix and, and stuff, but not for the arts. Uh, and so we are looking at ways in which we can monetize gate performances. Um, we will be doing a festival soon in October that will work with international artists. So we are commissioning digital, made for digital artworks with, with international artists and launching that online, uh, ticketing it, and in a way for us able to reach an international audience straight away, because with that, it's, it's no longer about folks being in Singapore. You, you could technically log in from anywhere in the world and still be part of Esplanade's festival. Uh, the other thing is, you know, in the, in, if you think about the sporting industry, they've used uh, viewing rooms, they've, they've uh, used all kinds of um, views and interactive technology with uh, broadcast sports events. And I think some of that's going to come into entertainment, live mm -hmm. entertainment and the arts. Um, it, with, with, I've seen a uh, Korean pop concert already happen with that where you know, it's multi-cam, you could just track the face of your favorite boy, band, singer. Uh, you could have separate chat rooms where, you know, if, if you're a fan only of that particular singer, you all can go in and gush about him. Uh, so I think some of these um, innovations that have come from the sporting sector, they've had a much longer history with broadcasting events. That's gonna creep into, I think first the entertainment, maybe not so much the arts first, because it does take uh, quite a fair bit of, um, investment. So I think the, the folks who may have the uh, ability to do this will be perhaps large concert promoters who will see the upside, a financial upside from this. Um, and then eventually when that technology uh, becomes a lot more um, common, or at least the, the entry level, the barrier of entry in terms of cost comes down, I, I think we'll, we will see a lot more of that for maybe performances, uh, theatre performances. Um, one other advantage from a outreach point of view or inclusive point of view is that I think it then, it then allows us to be more inclusive to, pe to different peoples with different abilities. Mm -hmm. Because if you, know, if you think about surtitling or if you think about folks with um, uh, the deaf community or, or if you're hearing impaired, some of these technologies can become built into our mobile phones and allow uh, a greater diversity of people to enter the theater and, and have some kind of tool or aid. So I think, you know, what's going to come up of COVID is that we're not all going to go and start watching only concerts online, but some of these solutions will get built into um, the concert experience. Uh, 
it may allow us to think about live concerts, but also extending that to, you know, maybe a delayed broadcast or maybe a live broadcast at home. Or perhaps if you paid a X dollar more, you could have the two. You could be, you could have live concert and you could have for the next two weeks, the ability to zoom in and watch your favorite star uh, up close and re-watch that concert again. So I think there will be probably new business models that will emerge from this kind of blended uh, experience and that will merge the line between arts, entertainment and what's online and what's offline. See, see, I'm really impressed because, I mean, you know, COVID's hit businesses very, very hard. Um, you know, and I think it was the MOM only, only last week said that 147,500 people have lost their jobs since the beginning of the year, this year because of COVID. It's huge. The impact economically is massive. And, you know, what I'm so impressed about talking to you is, is how positive you are, that this creates an opportunity to get the cultural enriching experience in slightly different ways. And I can, I can just see, you know, lots of Singaporean students studying in the UK and taking the Esplanade brand with them and listening to their home content whilst they're studying abroad, for example, in the future. And it sounds like you're building all of these really good things. As, as a leader, and, you know, that we have gone through lots of challenges and we've also seen some successes in what we've been doing over the last sort of six months. What have you sort of seen as being sort of challenging in some of your successes um, more specifically running the Esplanade? Well, I mean, the main thing is that whatever you know, you know, in, in a day or two or maybe in a week's time, it may no longer be true, true. right? Um, you know, when we, we, in, I would say in February, we were still having... Uh, performances and we were screening people from a temperature point of view and thinking that would be sufficient because of the SARS experience uh, Esplink was actually quite well prepared uh, we, we have thermal scanners we we had you know stickers we have all kinds of, of stuff just to make sure that we do what's responsible but very quickly we then learned that what we felt was enough is not enough right um, so I, I think if nothing else um, COVID's great for leadership because it's so humbling. It, it, it tells you how little you are in control. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, how much you must consult and how much you must stay really, really nimble and adaptive. Um, not take anything for granted. Uh, be as grounded as you can be. <laughs> yeah. But if you have no hope, I think then it, it all makes all of this... Uh, Harder. A bit of a nonsense, right? I mean, why bother? I, I think this is this is a deep dark hole of despair that no one wants to get into it at this stage. Um, and I, I, that's the role of the arts. In some ways, artists have always asked the most difficult questions, have been the most, um, been the first ones to stare into despair, but also the first ones to say, hey, this is what is possible. So I think it's, it's just the nature of, I, you know, it's the responsibility of those of us who work in the arts to not give up in, in that sense. Yeah. What's been your most difficult decision over the last sort of six months? Well, in some ways, a lot of those decisions are taken out of our hands. That, that's the other thing about COVID. Uh, you know, the decision to shut down, uh, mm. you know, the, all that's not ours entirely to make. We've been very, very fortunate. I mean, I, I must say, you know, the Singapore government has come in to support Singapore businesses quite strongly. And, and the, and to be frank, one of the reasons why we can speak so, uh, we can think about 
creating something for the future is because as an arts institution, we, we are kind of 50-50, 50 supported by government and we earn the other 50. And over the years, we've managed to kind of scrimp and save and build up some reserves that I think will take us through at least another year or two uh, with government support. So in, in some ways, we've not had to stare down that very um, dark tunnel of having to cut jobs yet. Yeah. Um, so that, that is based purely on, you know, the good fortune of folks who have come before us and have saved. Um, yeah, so I, I would say writing, writing on that, um, your original question on that before I digressed on the fact that, yeah, well, it's because we've had the resources to, to kind of build on to think about the future. Yeah, but in terms of really difficult decisions, they've been mostly taken out of our hands. And, but we were very, very clear from the onset, I would, I would think the, tough, the really tough ones is actually realizing that businesses that, um, that we work with are, are suffering. So for instance, um, artists and businesses, artists whose, whose works have been canceled, uh, we have a large pool of casual technicians. Um, as a result of there being no events, they technically have uh, no work. Uh, many of the restaurants that uh, were in our building for the first month of the lockdown, they weren't able to operate. So I think the really tough decisions have been about, have been conversations with these uh, parties who have felt the, the hit from day one. Uh, what kinds of support can we lend them? So we were fortunate at, in the first four months, the Singapore government provided uh, a rental subsidy or a rental waiver, essentially. So we could go to many of our tenants and say, you don't have to pay us rent, you know, just keep your workers, focus on food delivery, for instance. So that has really helped. And even until today, uh, we, we have very frank conversations with the people we work with, um, including our contractors. Uh, you know, you have a question about us building a, a new waterfront theatre. Our construction site has been closed. So we have frank conversations with our contractor. Are you, are you going to survive this? Are you going to have workers to deal with it? And... Um, I think the difficult decisions have been somewhat taken away simply because one, we've had the support, the very tough ones, we've had to just bear it as a country. So we didn't have a choice. Uh, and the third is, you know, we've just from day one have had very open conversations with people we work with and say, are you going to survive? What are we going to do to ride through this together? Uh, so even until today, we have conversations with our tenants on, you know, let's, let's just focus on the next 12 months. What can we do to help you uh, that wouldn't damn us, would allow us to continue as well, but also allow you to continue? Um, yeah, and, and that has helped, I think, just being very transparent with each other. Is that one of the leadership traits that you sort of value about yourself, that you're transparent and able to sort of have a, have a good vision for the future? Well, I think that's, that's always been something which the Esplanade's been, as an organisation, you know. Right. I always say every organization has integrity up on, on one of their core values, right? <laughs> every company is standard. It's, it's like the, I think if you did a survey, it will be what, 90, 95% of companies will have integrity as a core value. But I mean, how do you lift that out every day? And because we are publicly funded and we, we do see ourselves as, you know, even though we're not a government body, we see what we do as public service. Mm -hmm. And I would say everything we do, we hold ourselves back up to those standards of, how are we serving the public? And that includes businesses that work with us. And, and to me, that's integrity, right? Kind of being very honest about what you're trying to achieve 
And if you have nothing to hide with that mission, then, you know, what, what's really stopping you from having those frank conversations? So, yeah, I think that, that's how we've always functioned as, a, as an institution. Oh, I, I, I agree with you. Who, who do you turn to for help? Um, in a time like that, I, you know, oh, colleagues yeah. are family, right? <laughs> Uh, I, I think, you know, around the world, what, that's what we've learned, uh, you know, in times of crisis, it's always family first. And, you know, for an organization, it's then your colleagues. They may not have the answers, um, but they are definitely the first people you go to to say, you know, these are our questions or these are our challenges. What are the kinds of solutions that we have? Or who do you think we can speak to to find those solutions? So um, the people closest to you, and the people that you care most about, they must be the first ones you go to. Um, and then naturally the experts will come, you know, thereafter, if you agree that that's where you're going. Um, yeah, so I, I, that's for me. Uh, excellent. And Sing Singapore and the UK have a, a we have a very deep rooted relationship, right? And so, and you know, I think in the UK there are around about nine thousand performing art enterprises. How do you collaborate with other countries with uh, such a rich performing history? Back to relationships. You know, we we, we think about um, how an artist may have a relationship or a link to Singapore's culture. Um, you know, we go to a lot of conferences and sometimes it's just a casual conversation over coffee. It's not a commercial conversation. It's, it's first about understanding who you are as an artist. And sometimes something interesting comes out of that. And something, sometimes you're, you just make friends. You know, you don't ever present that artist, but you just make friends. And I think with, with the UK artists, I mean, I, I could use an example. I mean, Akram, Akram Khan has been an artist that was presented by the Singapore International Arts Festival uh, even before the Esplanade. And, you know, we've always admired his work. And obviously we see a link because of his uh, South Asian uh, background um, and really admired him for what he did, which is to, to take his, his background, his traditional uh, roots and arts, but also present that to a very contemporary audience and to continue to explore that language and to explore the, the language of um, Indian dance with other dance forms as well. So, I mean, that's, that's a great example for me of a, a British artist um, that we've worked with. In another way or another um, relationship that we build are often with you, other institutions. Um, so for instance, with co-commission work with Settlers Wells for years, and that comes with actually understanding um, each other's aesthetic tastes, how we work, uh, a certain level of trust in, you know, again, ability to have those frank conversations about, oh, wow, this budget is way too much for me. I'm not going to be able to do that, you know, and, and being able to do that just upfront and to be able to say, okay, what exactly is needed to support this artist? You know, how, how much can we go into this production with and for, uh, or, or actually saying, look, you know, we can't present this work, you know, it's, it's not going to relate to our, our Singapore artists or audience, um, or saying we definitely need subtitles for this. Um, so working with British artists, we don't have the issue of language. Uh, but again, it's finding those uh, connections. Uh, we've worked with Sadler's Wells also because they've made a lot, whole lot of investment in Asian artists. So sometimes with, with co-commission, Asian or, or very international artists together with, with, uh, with that company. Uh, with National Theatre, we've had Warhorse, but we've also had Curious Incident. Yep. And 
And these are stories, I mean, I also believe that regardless of where you come from, I mean, the power of the story to connect people, and it's, it's still at the heart of that, right? You, you can't deny a great human uh, kind of story or emotion that's told powerfully over the stage. And, you know, National Theatre has done you know, wonderful works. And th that's another company that we think, you know, translates very well to Singapore audiences. And you mentioned the National Theatre and Sadler as well. So are there other other um, sort of groups that you're looking at collaborating or creating um, opportunities for the future in, in terms of um, sort of sharing resources and sharing sharing backgrounds? Well, and another uh, well, maybe a festival. I mean, the Edinburgh Festival has always reached out to Singapore, uh, and you know, as as a festival city, they've done whole lot of interesting stuff, particularly with young people and young audiences uh, looking at, um, you know, how artists work with underserved communities, with a whole lot of uh, different communities, all with their varied and diverse needs. I think that's, that's something that's been quite interesting with uh, how British artists have been working. And we've learned a lot about that. Um, and I, so I would say children's theatre, it's definitely an area that we would love to explore more and also kind of artists who have used the arts to, uh, in socially engaged arts, I guess, artists who have used the arts to engage different aspects of society. I, I think that that's quite an interesting development as well. And just sort of sticking with that sort of future theme and just sort of bringing it back to Singapore, I guess, you know, what, what are the grassroots projects here that inspire the next generation to get involved with the art scene here in Singapore? I guess Singaporeans are very pragmatic and with, with the young ones, uh, I don't think things, well, because it, we are a lot more affluent now. So I imagine for a younger generation, um, the ability to think about an artistic career uh, is a lot more, well, the possibilities are higher. They don't have to think about supporting their parents, right? Um, so, you know, the stuff that's happening in schools, uh, we have a well, in the last 10 years, a new school of the arts that look at 13 to 18 years old. Um, that's quite an interesting development. I am still, you know, we've had maybe two or three generations or two or three years of graduates from there. So let's see whether that changes the artistic landscape. Um, lots of Singaporeans learn music. We're, we're actually a musically very literate population. Um, Esplanade is starting our indie music festival this month. We, in fact, we just launched it in August this weekend um, and so i'm constantly kind of uh, encouraged by the 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 amount of singer songwriters that come out from our young you know the folks who start bands uh, so who knows i think those kinds of grassroots um, now with technology the ability for young people to share their content uh, and to create their own legions of fans online even before an art center or a concert promoter discovers them uh, that's quite, that's quite exciting. Yeah. And does that make it easier when, when bands have got sort of a grassroots sort of following already where you, you, you can actually sort of work with them at that stage to help them? Yeah, I mean, it, you almost expect bands now to do that. If they haven't done it, you, you almost, you will go, you've not done your homework. Uh, but there's still that huge difference between uh, doing a recording in your bedroom and looking all dreamy and playing to a live audience. Because, you know, we, we see really, uh, sophisticated or uh, teenagers, right, uh, who, who make fantastic stuff online, but you put them on stage, 
and they may banter too much. Uh, they don't know how to work the crowd the same way. And so I think as a, in terms of the skills of commanding a live audience and bring the crowd with you, that's still a skill to be developed. Yeah, and so when we audition bands, uh, so Baby Eats, this festival that we have, um, it's, it's always that festival that discovers the next kind of next big band. And so uh, that's something we do. We, we make sure that they don't just send us their audition videos because we realize that doesn't tell you the true picture of how they're going to perform as a band. Uh, we've had to hold back the auditions simply because we have to make sure they can turn up in our venue and play. And sometimes we're surprised. Like you could sound fantastic on a recording and be completely off key in, in a live venue. You know, so, yeah. And you highlighted earlier about the, the Esplanade extension with the new 550-seat waterfront theatre. Um, is are you still planning? You, you must still be planning on on building that construction just uh, to to open up as a, as another venue. Yes, the construction's really started. We we halted it because uh, for a long time, uh, the last few months, uh, all construction projects were held back. Um, hopefully, we can restart that construction again. Uh, the opening will be delayed naturally uh, by perhaps another six months, but that's going on. It's a 550-seat theatre. It's going to be a semi-flexible theatre. Um, it will allow us, I think, to make a lot more new works, uh, particularly works with uh, Singapore and Asian artists. If you think about the kinds of productions that are touring across festivals around the world, they are typically for theatres that uh, are sized for audiences between what 400 to 800 so we do need a theater like that if we are thinking about making new works for the next generation oh that's amazing thank you Yvonne so much for your time today it's been a real privilege um, we are fully behind you and supporting of, of the arts here in Singapore and the the, the amazing community work that you do as well is, is, is astonishing so thank you so much for your time today no, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. And of course, always thanks to, you know, lots of British companies who, who come on board and work with us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britcham.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at